Hello, and welcome to Rinse and Repeat. I'm Carol Escaros. On today's episode, we are going to explore the life of a contemporary woman of the Bible named Evangeline Booth. Evangeline Booth was the seventh of eight children born to General William and Catherine Booth. You may recognize their names as the founders of the Salvation Army. They founded the Salvation Army in England, and Evangeline had a special call on her life from when she was a young woman. At the age of 17, she began teaching the Word of God. At age 20, she was in charge of a corps, basically a group in Marylebone, England, which occupied the largest building then owned by the Salvation Army at the time. At age 22, she assumed responsibility for all of the army programs in and around London, if you can imagine. She was 22. Can we pause there? At age 22, I honestly, I just graduated from school. I had just gotten married. I didn't know my head from my foot. I had no idea what I was doing. But she was responsible for all of the Salvation Army programs in and around London at age 22. I was a bench warmer at 22. Anyway, at age 30, she was appointed to lead the Salvation Army in Canada. But then by age 38, she became the national commander of the Salvation Army in the United States, which was headquartered in New York City. She held that post for 30 years. And in that capacity, she actually received the Distinguished Service Medal from President Wilson for the role of the Salvation Army in helping soldiers on the front during World War I. The female Salvation Army workers were known as Sallies, and they were serving, helping those soldiers on the front lines day in and day out. She received a medal for that effort. In fact, due in large measure to her work, the Salvation Army was able to raise $13 million at that time. Can you imagine in the early 1900s, $13 million, $13 million is a lot of money now, y'all. $13 million back then. The public responded so positively to her efforts, especially after the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. She and her Salvation Army ministered so much there at the time. They also worked tirelessly in opening soup kitchens during the Great Depression. She was truly, really, she was the first woman to oversee the Army's work as the general of the entire Salvation Army worldwide. In fact, she received an honorary degree from my alma mater, Columbia University, and also from Tufts College. She received honorary degrees from both institutions. So she was recognized for her work by secular institutions. But this is what I really want to point out about Evangeline Booth. Despite the great humanitarian efforts of the Salvation Army, Evangeline never lost sight of the purpose of the Salvation Army, of the core belief of that organization. In fact, in 1934, in an address, she said this, it is the yearning and passionate desire of my soul that at this time when the world is ripped apart by hatred, fearful of wars and revolutions and cast down by depressions. Remember, she's saying this in 1934. She continues that the Salvation Army shall go forth again and again, holding up the compassionate 
cross of Christ, whose alone we are, and that there shall be no hesitancy because of the hard obstacles, but courageous and fearless with our trust in him, we shall hold him up to the people of the world of whom he shall draw all men unto himself. These are her words. The heart of what she was doing, what the organization was doing was Jesus. There was no confusion here about what the role was. In fact, in the Songs of Evangel, published in 1937, she talks about what it was like for her when she was named the international leader of the Salvation Army. She said that that night at 3 a.m., she woke up uh, bowed under the immeasurable burden of the stupendous responsibilities of the call that had come upon me. She writes the refrain of a song that I have held on to now. She wrote, I'll give my heart. I'll do my part. I want you guys to hang on to those words for a moment. I'll give my heart. I'll do my part. But the last thing that Evangeline Booth said as she bade farewell to her role in the Salvation Army, she wrote this. As general, my first charge to you was preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. My last word to you as general is again, preach Jesus Christ. Preach Christ as the supreme gift to a world that is lost without him. Evangeline Booth, our woman of the Bible before we study today's woman of the Bible. What I love about that biography is that you do not have to be some sort of a radical feminist to be a woman who changes the world for Christ. Listen to me, especially ladies who are listening to me. It is not loud and offensive to share the gospel, to lead, and to have an impact over your sphere of influence. Certainly, women involved in women's ministry, addressing women's groups, leading their children at home in children's ministry, as long as you are following God's lead, be bold to share the gospel, to have that impact. And listen, having that gentle and quiet spirit does not mean you are silent. The woman we are about to study today is Deborah. Deborah follows God's lead. She is a woman of God, a woman of the Bible. She honors him in her role, and she is not silent. Now, does anyone out there, my listeners, know what Deborah's name means? I'm absolutely fascinated by the meaning of her name. Deborah's name means bee like a bumblebee, a bee. And if you study the importance of a bee and how they operate, you will know how fitting the name is to her character. But here is a woman who did what she was called by God to do, like the instinct of those little creatures that do what they are shown by God to do. Here's a woman who protected the life of a nation, as bees are critical to the protection of human life. And I could tell you all about pollination and give you a science lesson, but I'm not going to do that. Who's got time for that? And here is a woman who worked with Barak as a team to save the nation. So turn with me to Judges chapter 4. We're going to read this in sections together as we are prone to do. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. 
The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Pause for a moment there for context, okay? As we've said before, Judges is the period after Joshua, and we see a pattern arising among God's people in the book of Judges, okay? They do what's right for a while. They get relaxed. They start sinning. Judgment comes upon the people. They repent and cry out to God. God delivers them. So they start doing what's right. Then they get relaxed. They start sinning and on and on and on. The pattern begins and continues, repeat and repeat and repeat again. Doesn't that sound like the human condition? Isn't that us? We're on fire for the Lord. We're doing what's right. And then we start to get relaxed. Is it really that important that I'm in the word of God? You know, I can watch church online and then sin starts creeping in, that slow fade we always talk about, and then hard stuff starts happening, and then we have to repent and cry out to God. And this is where we find Israel. They're under judgment here, and this time by the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who's oppressing God's people for 20 years. But I want you to note something that you might not get just reading the passage at its face. Jabin is an enemy coming from within Israel. He's in Canaan. He's right there in the land. Why is he able to oppress them from within their own land? Because they did not obey God fully in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he told them to fully rid the land of the Canaanites. He told them to clear the land. They didn't, and that disobedience had severe and far-reaching consequences. Because they didn't obey him back then, they're getting bitten by Jabin right now. But let's go back into the passage, starting in verse 4. We're going to read this passage quickly, and then we're going to pull apart some amazing lessons. Verse 4, now Deborah the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy the troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Nephtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali in Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went with him. Now skip to verse 13 for a moment. So Sisera gathered together with all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, and from Harish Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Debor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So let's pause there, and let me review with you some of the key players so you don't get lost in our little story here. Jabin is the king of Canaan, and he's been oppressing Israel for 20 years, as we've said. 
Sisera is Jabin's commander of his army. Jael, Heber's wife, is the one who's going to get the glory at the end of this story, all right? She's the one that's going to be the ultimate hero of the story. Heber of the Canaanites, he normally would have sided with Israel, but he defects and helps Jabin instead. And we have Barak, the military commander of Israel. Those are just some of the players. But now, let's get to Deborah. Who is she? In verse four, we see that she is three things. She is the wife of Lapidoth. Uh, some commentators say she's the woman of Lapidoth as though it's a region, but most people agree that she's the wife of a man named Lapidoth. Then we see the second role. She is a judge, a leader of Israel. Let's talk about that for a minute. That meant that she heard people out in their disputes under this palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, okay? She is the only woman in scripture to be named a judge. But listen, a judge did a lot more than just hear disputes among the people. In the Hebrew language, this is important and it's so good. The title judge indicates someone who will bring others into right relationship. In other words, it has a spiritual dimension, not just a civil one, okay? In the Hebrew language, again, judge indicates someone who will bring others into a right relationship. And the last thing is she was a prophet. A prophet is one who received a word from the Lord and conveyed that word to the people. That's what a prophet was. They received a word from the Lord and they conveyed that word to the people. In other words, God's spokesperson. Now, Deborah is not the only female prophetess in the Bible. I want to make that very clear. I've listed this in other places, especially when we studied Miriam, because Miriam was a prophetess, as we know from Exodus 15. But Miriam and Deborah are not the only two prophetesses in Scripture. Huldah was a prophetess outlined in 2 Kings chapter 22. Noeda is a prophetess in Nehemiah chapter 6. There's a nameless prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8. But also in the New Testament, we have Anna, the one who prophesied over Jesus in Luke chapter 2. We know in Acts chapter 21, Philip's daughters prophesied. He had four daughters who prophesied. So Deborah is not an exception. There were several female prophetesses in Scripture. So let's be clear about what the Bible says. There are female prophets who received a word from the Lord and conveyed that word to the people. And Acts chapter 2, verse 17, if you guys are note takers, write this one down. It's so important. Acts 2, 17 sums it up. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Acts 2.17 is the one that says it, sums it all up right there. And I think it's important because there's some controversy on these issues. It's necessary to say that in each case of the prophetesses that we looked at, the role of prophetess in the Bible does not have qualifiers attached to it. In other words, the Bible does not state that she was a prophet because there was no man available. It doesn't say that she was a prophet because she's God's plan B. There was no other option. Okay. Anna is described as a prophetess that prophesied over Jesus with no qualifiers. And it's not because there were no other prophets around clearly at the time they're prophesying over Jesus. 
Deborah is the only woman to be named a judge, as we have said, and only she and Samuel are both judges and prophets at the same time. But I want to understand this fully because this is where it gets really good, less heady and really good. Let's talk for a moment about her relationship with Barak, okay? Barak and Deborah have separate roles, and both of those roles are ordained by God. As we've established, Deborah is a judge and a prophetess, and Barak is a military commander. Now, Barak gets a fair amount of flack for his words in verse 8, because he says to her in verse 8, if you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. A lot of commentators say, this guy's faith is so weak. What is he saying? Like, I'm not going to go unless you come with me because I'm scared. And it may very well be true because she seems to scold him when she says, your glory is going to go to a woman, Jael, who ultimately defeats the enemy with the tent peg later in the chapter. Here, the issue, the problem he may be facing is a conditional obedience, okay? He's saying, if you do this, then I will obey what God says. And I want to pause here and say to you all who are listening to me, if you are putting conditions on your obedience to God, I question whether it's obedience at all. If God does this for me, then I will do that. If I get this, then I will do that. It happens with my children. My children sometimes demand to know why they have to do something before they're willing to obey it. And I consistently say to them, then that's not obedience. That's leaning on your own understanding. That's you saying, oh, I agree with you. Therefore, I will do it. That's not true obedience. And that's not the relationship God has called us to with himself. Sometimes let's be clear about this. And I just taught this in my Names of God in-person study just yesterday. Sometimes God calls us to do things that make absolutely no logical sense. Sometimes he calls us to obey him, to forgive someone, but it kills us inside to do it. When our pride and everything in us bucks against us and he calls us to forgive. And he calls us to remain in a place that's so hard and so difficult. And he says, stay, I'm with you. Don't give up keep going. So remember, conditional obedience in Barak's case certainly seems like it's not real obedience at all, but other commentators don't seem to give him that much of a hard time because he does, in fact, get mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. He gets a passing mention, but he does get a mention. So the jury may be out on Barak, but whatever we make of him, let's note this important fact. Deborah has a role, and so does Barak. Both of those roles are given by God, and Deborah does not operate outside of her God-given role. She does not demand to command the army directly. She doesn't say, give me that scepter. Let me make sure I'm the one that is the commander of the army. I want to be the judge and the commander and the prophetess and all the things. She goes with him into battle, but she doesn't supplant him. And I think this is critically important. Women, we can be leaders, we can have great influence, and we can remain in our lane. Let's be clear about that. I can make this very personal. My husband has given me incredible leeway in particular areas for sure. In my home, I do a lot with my kids. I 
educate them. I have been the homeschooling parent of four children. If you guys don't know this part of my testimony, I have homeschooled my four children, K through 12. And in that time, I have had a lot of latitude. I have chosen what they're studying, how they're studying, what we're doing, how we're going about it, how we illustrate it. We've traveled places to illustrate the things that they're learning. I have had a lot of freedom. The who, what, when, where of my family's operating is under my husband's oversight, but I have a lot of leadership within that. But let's be very clear. My husband has the ultimate role of authority and leadership in my home. And if you ask my children, who is the ultimate final say-so in your house, they will say, it is dad. Ultimately, in our home, I will need to say, okay, let me think about these things and I have to talk to dad about it. He has the final say-so. And when his answer is no, I will have you all know the answer is no. I'm the yes parent, unfortunately. I'm like, okay, I think I can ask dad to get you to that party while I scoot that one over there and I run over here and I try to fit all the things in. And dad says, no, we're not doing that. You guys are picking one thing, pick one activity. And he's very comfortable in the space of saying no, whereas I might burn the candle at every which end and end up being a pile of melted wax that's useless on the floor. The point of all of this is I am not trying to supplant his role. I'm highly imperfect. Our marriage is highly imperfect. But what I'm trying to say is I can lead within my lane. I don't have to jump into his in order to have authority and influence over the lives of my children. And incidentally, I get a lot of questions about ministry in my own life. How is it that you get to do the podcast and retreats and this and that? I am operating in all of those spaces also under my husband's authority. He sees all of this ministry you're listening to right now as our ministry, not as my ministry. It is under his approval, his direction, his prayerful oversight. And let's be clear. My husband and I are equals in that journey. And Deborah and Barack are equal in their journey. You can have different roles and complete equality. The word of God elevates women rather than subjugating them. And Jesus especially did that. I really think I'm going to dedicate an entire podcast one day to how Jesus elevated women. Because there's a lot of misconceptions about this out there. There are no qualifiers to Deborah actually being the leader of a nation at this time in the role of judge and prophetess. There are no qualifiers on that, but she didn't assume Barack's role. Now, I want us to take four specific personal application notes from her character here. This is the stuff ah, that I love so much. Four specific things I want you to take home about Deborah. Number one, Deborah is a woman that has clearly heard from the Lord. Verse 6, she said to Barak, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy the troops? Has not the Lord commanded? She heard from the Lord. And that's my question to each of us right now. Are we hearing from the Lord? Let me ask you as directly as I can to an audience I can't see. How is your devotional life? If you are being completely honest with me, 
Are you in the word of God every day or nearly every day in some form? Maybe some of you have a hard time reading. Maybe you're just not big readers. Are you listening to the word of God? Is the Lord and his word truly front and center in your life? Have you ever gone from just that place of I'm a believer to being a fully sold out, surrendered follower of the most high God, giving your all to him? Where are you with the Lord? Deborah was completely hearing from him, completely sold out. And from that came all kinds of courage. Are you like her in that regard? The second lesson, having heard from God, Deborah obeys. She doesn't just hear the word, she does what it says. And look, she's doing that in the midst of profound spiritual darkness. The book of Judges is not like everybody's following the Lord. She's doing it largely on her own. And not only is she obeying it, she's encouraging others like Barak to do the same. She's doing it amidst profound spiritual darkness. She's encouraging other people to do it. And she's obeying in the middle of the battle. She's saying in verse 14, Barak, go. This is the day that God has given Sisera into your hands. Go. Has not God gone before you? Go. In other words, she obeyed even when it was hard to obey. As I've said, There are numerous times in our lives that God is going to ask us to do things that are very, very hard to do. Will we obey anyway? James 1, 22 through 25 is the passage that says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Read that passage. Understand what it is telling us. Are we doers of the word like Deborah was? The third lesson from her life that I love so much, having heard from God, having obeyed God, Deborah sees things through until the end. She finishes well. And this is a similar theme that we saw last week in Ruth and Naomi. She sees the battle through to the end to the final fulfillment of glory that is going to go to the woman, Jael. Do we finish what we start, my beloved listeners? Are we really, really good at starting a reading plan, but we don't finish it? Are we good at starting a journaling plan, but we don't continue? Are we good at serving in an area at church and then we're like, nah, do we ever follow through or are we growing weary in well-doing? Are you tempted to just give up? If I could give you a great lesson from Deborah, it's keep going right on to the end. Fight the good fight finish your race. And look at how Deborah finishes. She says this song in chapter 5, verse 31, okay? Judges 5, 31, she says, thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, and let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Even Matthew 13 says the same thing, the righteous will shine forth as the sun. I want you to think about that for a second. The sun especially here in Louisiana. I got to tell you, the sun in the summer, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. You wake up and it's 85 degrees at six o'clock in the morning here. But as the sun is rising and getting hotter and hotter, you can be at 100 degrees. It feels like 110 with the humidity. As your day progresses, as you get older, both in age and in maturity, are you getting hotter or colder as your day progresses? That's my question to us today. 
Which brings me to the fourth point. Having heard from God, having obeyed God, having finished well, Deborah does not take credit for the victory, but rather she worships God. She understands that the source of her victory is God himself, not her might, not her skill. It's God. She says again in 513, the Lord came down for me against the mighty. Listen to me. The Lord came down for her against the mighty. God sent a flash flood to help Barak win the battle. And I want us to be clear about this. When we obey God, when we refuse to give up, when we trust him, he does the rest. He does fight on our behalf. He is with us in the midst of spiritual darkness. Are you up against a mighty foe or a mighty circumstance or a situation where you're like, I have no idea how I am going to get out of this? Can we take the lessons from Deborah's life? Can we say, I'm listening to God and his word daily. I'm doing what I can, my very best to obey what God is showing me. I'm striving to finish what I've started and finish well. And then we're watching to see what God does as a result of that faithfulness. Can we follow Deborah's example and finish the way she did? Thank you all for listening to this episode of Rinse and Repeat. Again, my name is Carol Iscaros. It has been such a joy to have you join me today on this edition of the podcast. You can listen to Rinse and Repeat anywhere podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You can also check me out on Anchor FM. I am also online at caroliscaros.com. That's carol, E-S-K-A-R-O-S.com. There you can find out upcoming speaking engagements. You can let me know how the program has affected your life. You can drop me a note there at the website. You can also check out podcasts that you may have missed. And be sure, please, to join me next time as we explore our next Woman of the Bible. Woman of the Bible.